And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, it's it's having a good sense of Catholic history enables you to really uh, not get pulled off into uh, false arguments. It's a good have a good sense of how our community has lived and really prospered in 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 many ways. Catholic Church has thrived in America. Um, and it's interesting because different bishops have taken different approaches depending on where they were. There's a, there's a regional dimension to this. Of course, it shows up, I think, most vividly uh, in the uh, uh, Civil War period, in pre-Civil War and immediately afterwards. My guest, uh, Adam Tate, is the author of Catholic's Lost Cause, South Carolina Catholics in the American South. He is professor of history and chair of the Department of Humanities at Clayton State University. And Dr. Tate, it's good to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Al. Let's this uh, there's a there's a subtlety to this uh, your writing here, which I think is really important. And let, let's begin just by asking how in the in the priests in the antebellum South, the pre Civil War South. How were Catholics generally thinking about the institution of slavery? Okay, well, so this is a complex question, and I would be be happy to address it. If I could address one thing first, we can delve into that. No, very good. Go ahead. Yeah, so the the book is primarily on the Diocese of Charleston, which which at the time of its founding in 1820 encompassed South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia, a tremendous uh, a geographic area. And essentially, uh, in order to get to this question of slavery, we have to think first about what is it that, uh, what it, how does the Catholic hierarchy and clergy, uh, how do they see the situation that they're living in? What's, the, what's their perception of their context? And I think that maybe the easiest way to see, uh, to see what they're thinking about is to, to look at it in this way. Essentially, we have, we, we could say that the United States was founded mainly by British Protestants. And there are some Catholics in British colonial America, in North America, primarily in Maryland, of mm-hmm. course. Right. But Catholics played little direct role in forming the systems of government that govern the states and uh, the United States as a whole. But by 1860, thanks primarily to immigration, Catholics are the largest Christian denomination in the United States. Uh, and so what's going on is that all of a sudden there's been this explosion of numbers of Catholics. At the same time, uh, there is a revived anti-Catholic movement in the United States in the early 19th century that is related to both religious and cultural tensions in the United States and in the Anglo-American world, we could Mm -hmm. say both Britain and the United States. So the question for bishops and leaders is how did they... How could they adjust? Uh, how could they deal with such a situation in which their numbers are uh, small but growing, and at the same time they're in a place where they did not Catholics did not really have a direct uh, influence on the formation of the country, and this is pointed out to them numerous times. So they have to come up with a strategy of how to engage the not only the United States but then regionally. Uh, in the United States, they have to think about different 
strategies, right, that they're going to use in order to plant the faith and evangelize. So, so in in um, in the Carolina society, then this is a conscious effort on the part of the Catholic leadership. There, we're going to we're we're going to have a you know pursue a, a strategy institution building. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Right. So their strategy, right, in in South Carolina is 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 formed by one other uh, thing: is that in the 1830s through the 1850s, there's a number, millions of Catholic immigrants are coming to the United States, but they're mostly settling in the North. Uh, there are some who settle in port cities in the South, but generally in the Carolinas, it's mostly a rural society. There's not many Catholic immigrants there. There are some who come through, mostly Irish, some Germans, but um, what so the clergy says the way we're going to do it our strategy is going to be to build uh, Catholic institutions because that's going to root us in the culture mm-hmm, right so mm-hmm. the idea is that if we are rooted in the culture then we're going to be then we can be accepted as part of the culture rather than being seen as interlopers in somebody else's country or somebody okay. else's project so they don't want to so, be a Catholic ghetto. They do not. In fact, in the South, in, in the first bishop of Charleston, John England, was very adamant that uh, he did not want that. There's going to be no ghetto. Uh, the idea is that Catholics are going to try to seek uh, to live as citizens with others and want to be accepted as such. In England, Bishop England hoped that this could overcome kind of the longstanding English tradition of anti-Catholicism. So, Again, their strategy is to build institutions um, and parishes, schools, so forth and so on. Now, again, uh, all strategies have both advantages and disadvantages. And the disadvantage of the institution-building strategy is that, of course, it's expensive. And when you're dealing with mostly an immigrant population right. that's rather poor, uh, building and maintaining institutions costs a lot, of, a lot of money. And so the bishops end up having to devote a lot of time to fundraising, which takes them out of you know, evangelization efforts. And not only that, but there's another problem, if you think about it this way, is that when you're building institutions in a culture as a small minority, in some ways you're, you're going to now become more dependent on your non-Catholic neighbors for right. your very survival. That's right. right. So in other words, you're going to have to maintain good relations because you're pouring money and in infrastructure uh, to build infrastructure. You're investing in a place and as you're rooted there, your institutions are going to become targets for your enemies. Um, also, uh, they're going to be costly. They have to be maintained. And to grow, you're going to need to root them in, in uh, root more of them around. And this is going to, devo- to uh, you're going to have to devote a lot of time to doing this. So, in some senses, this is a great strategy. But in other senses, it has some costs that become that, that the bishops become aware of. Right as they are, um, as they are engaged in this process in the decades before the Civil War. Well, it's difficult to be any kind of prophetic presence in a society in which you are dependent for your survival upon the goodwill of everybody <laughs> of the Correct. surrounding society. Uh, Al, that's a great point, and that's exact. That's, that's another cost to this strategy, right? So, all minor. This is a situation we could say that is common to minority groups, and the church specifically feels that, uh, feels that pressure. And, and I'll, in a moment, I'll address the slavery question sure. as we, uh, maybe in a few minutes, uh, to, to bring that point home, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. So what do Catholics do uh, 
to demonstrate, as they build their institutions, how do they also demonstrate that they are not, uh, they're not building, they're not really competitive in the, in the negative sense with the other, uh, with their peer institutions, that they're trying to strive for a common brotherhood here? What, yeah, are they, what do they? What do they do? Again, that's a great question too. So, one of the things that I found in doing some of the research is the way I, the way I see what they're doing is that um, they're actually engaged in a very similar process that other religious groups in the South had been involved in as well, particularly the evangelicals who. Um, at the turn of the 19th century, the evangelical movement explodes in the South, and Baptists and Methodists in particular, and Presbyterians to a, a lesser degree, made similar efforts of institution building and such to try to root themselves in Southern culture. Mm-hmm. And so Catholics uh, in Charleston are doing this, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later. They're, they're following a strategy that others have already engaged in and has been rather successful. So, uh, so I'll give you a, so that that's kind of a background. But I say a couple of things. So one of the things that they do is that they use uh, some of the same tactics or same methods uh, that most people are. Um, familiar with in the culture. So, for example, uh, the Diocese of Charleston publishes a newspaper. That's a national newspaper. It's the first national Catholic newspaper in the United States called the U.S. Catholic Miscellany. They start this in 1822, and it is costly to do this, but the paper keeps up publication until December 1861. There are a few small lapses here and there for money reasons, but essentially, right, they are publishing a newspaper that is giving Catholic news, news from around the world, some news from the diocese, and so forth, and they're allowing others, right, non-Catholics, of course, to read that, and they're projecting that image out to the whole nation, but also their diocese, right? So this is a common tactic. Americans in the 19th century are huge readers of newspapers. Uh, they, there is a widespread newspaper culture, so they do that. The other, another thing they do, for example, is um, St. Patrick's Day is a very important day for Catholics uh, in Charleston. Catholics have formed ethnic clubs, right? Uh, sometimes they're uh, solely Catholic in membership. Sometimes they are Irish uh, clubs. They have both Protestants and Catholics, and they parade. They uh, they have a militia. They have uh, they have uh, um, oftentimes on St. Patrick's Day they have mass at the beginning, and everyone is invited to to come to church and hear a sermon. Usually the sermon was on Irish history or the importance of Catholicism to, uh, to the world and to Ireland in particular. So in other words, that uh, they invited others in their community to participate in their activities, but not, and when they did, they didn't necessarily hesitate from talking about their faith and trying to, to show other um, show their other citizens, uh, you know, their fellow neighbors, that you know there was n- they were not a Catholicism was not a threat. Uh, it was not going to come and take over their country. They didn't right. have to be scared of them. In fact, Catholics saw themselves as engaged in a very similar task of building virtuous citizens, which is that's a major component of early American Republican thought and culture in the 19th century. This is a, this is a big idea that's shared by Protestants. Catholics and even some non-Christians uh, right. mm-hmm. in the early republic, uh, 
this is a very important idea. And Catholics uh, speak to this language. Mm. Freedom, right? freedom so a free society is dependent upon a virtuous and educated citizenry. That kind of thing. Correct. Yeah. So this is a major. This is a major idea. It's it's sponsored. I mean, it's promoted not just by Catholics. Uh, by, by Protestants, yeah, by yeah. secularists as well, right? Sure. Uh, you know, some of the many of the founding fathers wrote on this idea. Yeah. And John England, uh, the first bishop, uh, he is often he often gives uh, talks, sermons, uh, writes newspaper articles promoting this very view. Doctor Tate, hold it there. We'll take a break. Come right back. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Adam Tate. He is the author of Catholics Lost Cause, South Carolina Catholics in the American South, 1820 to 1861. Uh, let me... What? How do Catholics um, deal with the, the, the doctrinal, clear doctrinal differences that they have with the Protestant South? Do they yes. do they downplay those, uh, or do they develop a system of apologetics? How is that handled? Yes, great question. So, uh, again, this is another, uh, you can imagine uh, many times in, um, well, in a modern terminology, ecumenical dialogue, one could downplay one's values to try to build common ground. But uh, in the 19th century South in particular, Catholics in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia had a vigorous apologetic uh, culture or ministry, yeah. if you will. And uh, this is primarily what their newspaper was about. And also many sermons that um, are reported on in the paper are often apologetic in nature, especially sermons that are given on let's say, uh, a day when the bishop might be visiting a far-flung parish out in the, in the rural areas, and as he goes, people come to hear him, and he knows he's got a lot of non-Catholics there, and so he will address, uh, he will address common doctrinal problems. So the newspaper has uh, almost, almost every issue has articles on apologetics, and uh, Catholics in South Carolina get into vigorous debates with local ministers, with uh, lay people, all kinds of people. In the book, I have a uh, I have a very lengthy chapter where I kind of tediously tease out this one, actually two debates that Catholics are having with a Lutheran minister in Charleston, and the Presbyterians get involved as well. And it, it is uh, it produces over it produces about a thousand pages of apologetic wow. writing about history and theology and doctrine and so forth. Part of why this apologetic culture is is built in South Carolina is because, in my my argument, is because of the importance of honor in the South, of honor culture. So oh, that yeah. um, part of the idea, uh, right? Honor culture is very important in the nineteenth century South. That that basically men are supposed to be um, independent. They're supposed to have a a reputation for virtue, and that reputation is. Uh, of course, in the eyes of their beholders, right? So your reputation is important. Well, Catholics and anti-Catholic propaganda has portrayed Catholics as kind of craven. They're always, uh, they're always, uh, you know, kind of crawling on their knees, letting their priests tell them everything yes, to do. Right, they're right. trying to take over government or something like that. Yeah. They're not manly. Well, 
in this sense, right, this apologetic culture is very, very vigorous because Catholics want to display, number one, we know what we're talking about. Number two, if you want to come reason with us, bring it on. We're not afraid <laughs> of you, right? And uh, we will be glad to debate you in any, uh, at any time, anywhere. And they devote a tremendous amount of time to this. Now, again, that's very important, but at the same time, sometimes, as, as we know, arguing with people can really antagonize right. them yeah. against us. And so uh, in the chapter on uh, apologetics in the book, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the problems is, is that all of a sudden one of the ministers begins attacking uh, Catholic charitable activities in the local hospital, saying that Catholics are trying to convert Protestants on their deathbed. This was a frequent charge in anti-Catholic literature, kind of tricking them to become Catholics or uh, so forth. And the, bishops had to come, the Bishop of Charleston had to come out and clarify all of this stuff and what was done. And then the minister responds by saying, this is why we shouldn't donate any money to Catholics, because they're going to undermine our Protestant faith and values here, right? So in some sense, right, the apologetics strategy has, or the, the tactic of apologetics, has many strong points, but also, right, could yeah. somehow in, uh, potentially endanger this institution-building process as well. So they saw, they saw that problem. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, too, given that the nation divides uh, over the issue of slavery— it's it's not only the issue of slavery as paramount as that is, but it's also certain a certain vision of what what constitutes a nation. Um, so in the South, how did they view um, and how did Catholics view what it meant to be a state within the larger you know federation or confederation? Sure. Yeah, good question. Yeah. So part of what I what a part of what I try to argue in the book is that at least the the bishops in Charleston, right? I uh, we have a dearth of sources for average lay Catholics. I, we can't really tell exactly uh, how representative uh, they were of the clergy's views, but certainly the sources that have, that we have generally the uh, the. The message from the bishops, particularly in their newspapers and speeches and so forth, is is that what is what we refer to as kind of a Jeffersonian vision of the union. And when I say that, I mean obviously from Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson's essential idea was that the union was the union of states was a union of sentiments of feeling. So in other words, Jefferson argued that look, uh, w- our country is this great expanse. Uh, there's people from all over, uh, you know, from uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico up to New England, and uh, they don't all come from the same culture or the same place, even though we speak a common language. And so what binds us together is not so, so much um, one government, but a feeling of uh, devotion to one another that has been produced by our common experiences, sometimes our common blood or common religion, common experiences in particular, and by that he means fighting in the revolution and such. And so one of the things that, uh, in the Jeffersonian view, is that the United States does not necessarily have to be one homogenous nation. In other words, it doesn't have to be one people under one government, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that there, in this sense, is that uh, under Jefferson's view, the states ha- are, have much more uh, autonomy uh, within the federal system, 
and that this, uh, this autonomy also could reflect and did reflect cultural differences that, of course, are related to slavery, but not exclusively to that question. Mm-hmm. And so Catholics in, in South Carolina tended to argue that, look, Catholics uh, did participate in the, in the American Revolution. There were Catholics like Charles Carroll of, uh, from Maryland who participated in the revolutionary cause. There are Catholic signers of the Declaration of Independence, this, that, and the other. And so, therefore, we have a place in this nation, because in, in this country, because we're one of the peoples who has a history here. And our sentiments, we love the United States just like uh, our non-Catholic brethren here mm-hmm. did. We, have, we made similar sacrifices. And so the argument, right, is politi- one of the ways that they view the nation is to say, look, if you have one strong government that can dictate one culture over the whole nation, then we're, we're going to have problems because the nation itself is, or the country itself is made up of all these different groups, Catholics being one of them. And if, if the government will define we're going to be a Protestant nation, well, well then where does that leave us, right? right so right. the idea for the bishops was that, look, we, uh, we have sentiments of attachment to the Union based on, its, based on our own history here, and this binds us to our neighbors. They tended to fear efforts of what, of what we could call, what I call in the book, a liberal nationalism. And what I mean by that is where you have one government kind of enforcing rights over all individuals within a geographic territory. Right. Because they saw this as, uh, they, they see this in particular linked to the nativist movement, uh, which is a political movement in the 1830s, 40s, 1850s, where nativists are trying to use the government to limit uh, Catholic immigration. They're trying to limit certain voting rights for Catholic immigrants and so forth. And so uh, many Catholics are afraid that if you empower right, the, the federal government too much and give it too much authority over, um, over everyone, that Catholics are going to be at the short end of the stick. And, of course, in their historical memory, this is exactly how they saw what Great Britain had done, what, what, what the English had done to Ireland, right? That they, had, uh, they make this analogy often, right, that, that the Irish had been victims of kind of an overarching central, uh, central government that had taken away their rights. Now, this view, this Jeffersonian nationalism, was, of course, very popular in the South, and particularly in South Carolina. And so, therefore, Catholics could portray themselves as being very similar to their neighbors right. in their politics. Right. And they right. could so see they could join join with them in this cause. And they could see this liberal nationalism which I think is becomes a dominant view in the north, doesn't it? Well, it's certainly yeah, I mean it, yes. It, it, we could say uh that uh, in very general terms, yes, that view is more predominant in the North, although uh, there are significant pockets where that's not true, but certainly there is a regional aspect to mm-hmm. those beliefs at the time. Yeah. So um, well, that would tend to strengthen, then, their ties with their, their neighbors uh, in the South. Uh, so now we get to, we realize how complicated this issue is regarding slavery. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, so start so to sort so, that out for us. Let's let's talk about it. So, South Carolina is uh, slavery is essential. It's very integral to their economy, right? So, 
1860, um, according to the U.S. Census, slaves make up about 57% of the population of the state of South Carolina. And um, the free population of the state is a little over 300,000, about 26,000 people in South Carolina, according to the census of 1860, owned uh, owned slaves. So there's a significant portion, uh, there's a significant slaveholding presence in the state. And South Carolina, its economy is very tied to to slavery. Now there's there's a couple of um, there's a couple of factors that the bishops are trying to work through here, right? So one of them is that uh, most of the Catholics in South Carolina are rather poor and don't own slaves, right? So uh, in other words, slaveholding among Catholics in South Carolina seems to be very little, right? Just mm-hmm. people did not have the financial means to do so. And the other factor is, of course, that uh, slavery had come to South Carolina during the colonial period uh, when Catholics couldn't even show up in the state of South Carolina, so they were banned. Uh, So the point is being that uh, Catholics were not, did not bring slavery to South Carolina, right? Now, there's another issue, too, is that... Can can you hold it there, uh, Dr. Tate? We take a break, we can come back. Uh, My my guest, Dr. Uh, Adam Tate, is the author of Catholics Lost Cause, South Carolina Catholics in the American South, 1820 to 1861. We're, uh, again, taking a look at how Catholics dealt with uh, the very complicated issue of slavery. Of course, for us, it doesn't seem all that complicated today. We're removed from it. But uh, we'll continue the conversation on the other side. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Adam Tate. He is the author of Catholics Lost Cause, South Carolina Catholics in the American South, 1820 to 1861. And we're up to the point where we can begin to kind of uh, take parse out uh, the various approaches to slavery that uh, were present in the South and exactly what was distinctive uh about the Catholic position, given their historical background, given their theological sensibilities. Slavery, as one historian uh, of slavery has written, slavery was a hornet's nest that required a good deal more care and prudence to deal with than many today who are safely tucked away from the institution by the space of time realize. So so the, the Catholics in the South didn't have the money— to, to have slaves to speak of, and then they didn't originate it because they weren't part of Carolina society when slavery uh, you know, became institutionalized there. Uh, so they they don't have the same uh, natural sympathies uh, regarding defense of slavery, it sounds, that most Southerners would have. Go ahead. Right. So, okay, so again, um, right, so most of the Catholics in South Carolina simply were not slave owners. They didn't have the money to do so. And so the other thing is is that um, because Catholics had, uh, uh, popes had put out uh, letters condemning, for example, the slave trade, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, Catholicism has a reputation in the United States among among some as being an anti-slavery institution. Well, in South Carolina, this is when 57% of your population is enslaved. 
Um, and of course, slavery is upheld ultimately through force, right? Uh, that <laughs> this is going to be a problem. Uh, this can be a problem for people at various times. Uh, or this issue is going to be much more difficult to navigate. Now, essentially what I argue in the book is that Catholics don't ultimately do a great job with the issue. Uh, they tr- bishop England, the first, uh, the first bishop of Charleston, tries uh, to, well, the way that he deals with the issue is this. He says, look, uh, we do need to evangelize uh, African Americans, and certainly Catholics were not unique in doing that in Charleston. They are uh, part of the Catholic community. They worship together in the churches. Bishop England teaches catechism to um, African Americans in the in his uh, in his cathedral, um, but uh, Bishop England also says he says, look, um, slavery shouldn't be introduced anywhere that it's not in existence. In mm-hmm. other words, he he doesn't see it as a good institution. But he says, what do we do with it here now? And so he writes in the early 1840s, right before his death, a series of letters that he publishes in the newspaper in which he tries to trace uh, how slavery is dealt with in the first thousand years of Christianity. And what he, what he argues there is that what he reads is he says that, look, slavery sh- is, um, uh, Catholics have a duty to try to, number one, ameliorate the conditions of slaves, uh, of slavery, and with the goal of phasing out the institution. Mm-hmm. So his, uh, but the problem is, is that that process gives kind of a very indefinite timeline right. and an uncertain future, right? So, in other words, what, um, what, you know, what does that mean? Now, he gives some suggestions uh, over how this could be done, um, but again, he says, I'm not the legislature, you know, right. essentially, I can't, I can't do this. Now, the problem, too, is that some took his views as being um, as being a cause for Catholics to get involved in trying to ameliorate the condition of slaves, and this is also a movement in evangelical Protestantism at the time as well. Mm-hmm. But but um, others take it as well. Bishop England didn't say that slavery was wrong, so we should just have it. Whatever happens in the future happens in the future. So they didn't now, see that I, he was a gradualist. Yes, right, absolutely, right? So that's a good way to put it, right? So he believes there should be a gradual end to it over time. But again, the problem with the gradualist assumptions is that without providing some kind of definite steps... Yep. You can be, it can be seen as just kind of dismissing it later, you know, for yeah. later. Other the status quo just is perpetuated, right? right? Of course, yeah, that's right. So this, and of course, this was one of the critiques of this at the time uh, by, by different folks. Now, uh, what I argue then is that the the third bishop of Charleston, Patrick Lynch, who uh, he serves as a diplomat actually for the Confederacy during the Civil War, he goes over to Rome to meet with. Pope Pius IX to try to get him to support or at least recognize the Confederacy diplomatically, um, Lynch decides to write a, a pamphlet that is published in um, several European languages as well as, as well as English. And in his pamphlet, he argues uh, that amelioration is, a, is not a cause that we really need, and he tends to, uh, his language suggests that he sees, um, uh, sees African Americans as kind of relegated to the condition of slavery, and there's really nothing they, that we, you can do about it. Uh, uh-huh. So 
He doesn't say outright that he thinks that African Americans are inferior, but it seems that that's the suggestion of some of the passages. Now, in mm-hmm. Bishop England, he never there's the passages he doesn't he doesn't say that he doesn't use a racial defense. Uh, so what I'm what I see in the book, what I what I argue in the book is that Catholics try to work out this kind of difficult issue. Um, it, it, again, you you had a great quotation. It doesn't seem difficult to us, but yeah. at the time it seemed very difficult. Uh, and I don't think they were able to chart an independent course there on the issue. Okay. All right. Um, did when it came time uh, when the you have uh, Fort Sumter, how do Catholics respond? Yes. So uh, that's very good. At least uh, publicly in their newspapers, uh, they respond very enthusiastically. So um, one of the things that's going on in the 1850s in the paper that I in the newspaper that I found very interesting was that Catholics are con- the, the, the the clergy who are editing and writing articles in the in the diocesan newspaper are almost none at all talking about the major issues in American politics in the 1850s. They don't talk much about slavery. It doesn't pop up much. They don't talk about the political fights that are going on in Congress and this, that, and the other. What's consuming their minds are the revolutions in Europe. So in 1848, there's a number of revolutions that break out in Europe, and these ultimately come to Italy, and uh, Pius IX has to flee Rome for a time. Right. And the revolutionaries take over Rome and so forth. And the newspapers are writing... Uh, about ten times as much about European politics during the 1850s than they are uh, American uh, American <laughs> politics. And so, what's kind of interesting is that when the move, when 1860 comes along, and it looks like secession will happen, it looks like Lincoln's going to get elected, and so forth. Uh, in the Catholic newspaper, the way they interpret. American politics is through a lens of those revolutions of 1848. Their argument is that, look, Lincoln and the Republicans are a northern radical party, and they are no different than the European radicals who are trying to remake European society and war against Christianity, and uh, they want to do the same for us here. And so, therefore, they tended to embrace secession as a way to kind of preserve South Carolina, preserve uh, their state and the South from kind of that that influence there. Uh, what's interesting is they say very little uh, publicly uh, about slavery in the paper at the time, although it does come up some, but not as much as you would expect reading, let's say, secular newspapers at right, the time. Right. From them, they're they're looking at uh, they're viewing this uh, this event in a different lens than their fellow citizens. And so I found that very interesting as well, is that this kind of proves or kind of strengthens the case that they see the Union in that Jeffersonian term, that they have their own sentiments, that they some of them are linked to their neighbors in common, but then they also have their own culture and lens by mm-hmm. which they're looking at things. The assemblage now, of peoples versus liberal nationalism. Correct, right. Yeah. So in, in Cal, John C. Calhoun, the South Carolina politician, his phrase that the Union is an assemblage of peoples, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's how they, that's that tends to be how they were looking at looking at the issue. Now, of course, it doesn't turn out well for them, the war. So uh, South Carolina is devastated by the war, and of course they're on the losing side, 
And not only that, but a lot of their institutions are destroyed by the violence of the war. Right. And so that Bishop Lynch, when he comes back from Rome, he finally gets back into the country, he has to spend much of the rest of his life begging for money to pay off the tremendous debts incurred by all of the destruction of church infrastructure uh, during the Civil War. And then what becomes, we've got about two minutes, two and a half minutes left, what, be, what happens with the lost cause uh, ideology? Right, so I use that term, uh, I got it from, uh, well, that's a famous term, right? The idea right. of the lost cause is that the South had a, uh, had a, uh, a just cause, but had been overwhelmed by men and material that they, you know, they were not, uh, they were not able to, uh, to do this even though they had fought nobly and so forth. Right. And I think that what happens is, is that the Catholic lost cause, if you will, is that Catholics in South Carolina had really tried to uh, build, a, uh, build a vision of the faith where they are embedded in a place and, uh, and they are seen as kind of fellow travelers, if you will, in this culture, but that they could be vigorously Catholic as well. Of course, like any people, they have uh, they don't always succeed at that. But what what I think that happens, and what some scholarship is, uh, has suggested, is that after the war, the dominant model for Catholicism becomes the ghetto model. Uh, that is, that Catholics are undergo another wave of kind of uh, anti-Catholicism, and they tend to build ghettos. They tend to um, uh, uh, particularly in the north, but in other places too, they t- they tend to stay in their own place, and there's not as much uh, an engagement, right, of 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 the culture. Now that's a broad generalization, and I'm sure there's hundreds of of exceptions to that rule. But in South Carolina, what happens is after the war, for example, the, their diocesan paper is no longer published. Right? Wow! Uh, it's no longer a national paper. They uh, many of it, and they have to spend rebuilding all that they had lost. They can't really expand as much, and so this is uh, this is the issue that they kind of had had a cause that they had fought for, that is to be Catholics and Southerners and Americans, all three together. But though that tensions between those, or among those three things, ultimately did not work out. And so uh, it did not work out because of the war and its destruction. And so this cause that they had engaged in seems to them a noble cause, but one that is lost, right? Wow. And, and how is it going to be recovered now? It seems impossible. Dr. Tate, thank you. That was outstanding. And uh, I really do appreciate it. Uh, We need more thinking of our history this way. Okay, thank you, Al. Thanks for having me.